So, last week, uh, Caleb mentioned how much he dislikes when people say, studies show, or research says. So, I thought, why not start with exactly that? Um, so, I was actually doing some research. I am going to be preaching this morning on the topic of friendship. And I decided to do some research of my own on uh, what research and studies have shown regarding um, how friendship impacts our lives. And um, I found one study, so hopefully this will put Caleb at ease, but this isn't just one study. This was actually a meta-analysis that I found. So they looked at, the researchers looked at 148 other studies that were done. So they comp compiled data from 148 different studies, and they were looking at studies that dealt with people who either had like a social network, had companions in their life, and those who didn't. And when they compiled all the data, they recognized a correlation, and it was, it was unbelievable. So they found that people who had companions um, in their life, so that's friends, family, those types of things, they had a like a legitimate social network, not just a Facebook account, but they actually had people in their life that knew them. And this is not distinguish, distinguishing between the quality of that companionship. So this could be good relationships or very toxic bad ones. So they don't, it, the study didn't even differentiate that. So all that stuff was averaged together. Those who had companions in their lives had a 50% increased odd for survival in life, just in general, compared to those who don't have companions. Um, so, in other words, a 50% increased chance of like surviving um, a surgery, like a difficult surgery, or um, just living, surviving cancer, um, all these different things, like living a longer life. They had a 50% increased odd of surviving. Um, a long life if they had companions. So, in other words, to kind of put that into perspective for you, for someone to not have companions in their life was equivalent, the odds of survival were equivalent to someone who smokes 15 cigarettes a day. Um, it was equivalent to someone being an alcoholic. Um, it was worse the odds of surviving without companions are worse than never exercising at all and twice as bad as someone who has obesity. Um, and so hopefully that kind of puts into perspective for you guys how significant it is for people to have companions in life. Um, it is, you, like, you don't have to be a Christian to recognize that having friends, having companions is a crucial factor and aspect of being a healthy, joyful human being. Um, as I said, you don't have to be a Christian to see that. But for Christians, we want to think deeper and further than that. Um, our goal is not simply to have a happy, healthy life, to be happy, healthy people. Like, we do desire that, of course, but that is not ultimately our goal our goal and our pursuit is first and foremost to glorify Christ and to be like him, our Lord. And having friends is a crucial aspect of that as well. So it's not just about having, being happy and living a long life. If we want to glorify our Lord well, 
we need to have companions. We need to have friends. And that's something that I want us to see this morning. This, it, friendships, it's, it's one of those things that's interesting where you, in life, you don't have to have friends. You're going to have family. Like, you were born to someone. Like, you're going to have coworkers. You're going to have those types of things in your life. Friends is, in a sense, an optional aspect of life. But when we look at what the Bible has to say about friendship, we'll see that it's not actually optional. It's not just an add-on that we can tack onto our lives, and it'll benefit us a little bit. Um, it's a crucial aspect of following Jesus Christ. And so if you don't take anything else out of the sermon this morning, the one thing I want you to take out of it is that following Christ means having biblical friendships. Um, it means more than that, of course, but it doesn't mean less than that either. Um, following Christ means having biblical friendships. But again, I don't want you to just take my word for that. I want you to see that in Scripture itself. Um, and so I want you to know up front, we're going to be looking at a lot of passages this morning. Most of them will come from Proverbs. Proverbs has a lot to say about friendship. Um, but our anchor verse, and what we're going to be reading in a couple minutes, is John 15, verses 12 through 17. So if you want, begin turning there now. Um, but like I said, that's going to be kind of the anchor passage that we have for this sermon. We're going to look at it at first, and then we're going to come back to it at the end. Uh, but you'll see that no one verse and passage that we look at this morning is necessarily going to paint the full picture of what the Bible's teaching on friendship is. We're not going to be able to look at one passage, and that's going to tell us everything that the Bible has to say on the subject. That's not the case. And so... I want you to think about the passages that we look at this morning as like pieces of a puzzle, and when we put them all together, we have that picture that the Bible paints. And so they, they give us bits and pieces, and when we see them all together, we see what the Bible's teaching on this subject of friendship really is. Um, and like I said, they show us that if you hope to follow Christ well, you want intimate, godly friendships in your life. So, uh, with that said, let's turn there now, if you haven't already done so. Uh, we're going to look at John 15, 12 through 17. Um, so, I will read that, and then you guys can follow along as I, as I read it. So, Scripture says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." So there are two main things that I want you to see right off the bat in looking at this John 15 passage. Uh, first, Jesus is calling us his friends. So that alone should make us want to think deeply about what friendship is. If he's calling us friends, that means something. So what does it mean? So we want to consider what is, what, like, what does Jesus mean when he calls us his friends? What is friendship from a biblical perspective? But second, he also commands us to love one another. And part of that command to love one another involves befriending one another, which is why 
as soon as he says that in verse 12, the very first example that Christ immediately gives is one of friendship. So friendship is built into this calling for us to love one another. So if the first reason wasn't enough for you, the second one should certainly be having biblical friendships is actually a matter of obedience to Christ. That's part of what he's saying here. He's calling us. He's commanding us to do that. So if you weren't already interested in thinking deeply about the subject because he calls us friends, at the very least, recognize that it is a matter of Christian obedience to befriend people um, and to be friends of Christ. So, but the problem is that not many people have biblical friendships and not many people even really know what the Bible has to say on this subject. They don't know what a biblical friendship really is. Um, and this was really... This is a subject that I've spent a lot of time thinking about over the last couple of years, but like even in preparing for this sermon and this past weekend, like yesterday I was at um, Clinton and Kyla's wedding, many of you guys know them, um, but I was at their wedding yesterday and I had a couple of dear close friends that were there that don't live in this area, so I don't get to see them very frequently, and I was really convicted about the fact that these are people that I would consider some of my closest, dearest friends. And yet we had to spend a lot of time just catching up because I knew nothing about what was going on in their lives for months. And that was really convicting for me that here I am considering these people my closest friends, but I don't even even know anything that's been going on in their life for the last couple months. Um, that was really convicting for me. And so like, it was convicting that even having read and studied this subject a lot, I, I personally, very functionally fail at knowing what this means and living it out. But it's, it's not a topic that's discussed very much. Um, and there's not even a lot of books written about it. I've tried to read as many of them as I can, and there's not very many good books on this subject, and there's even fewer that have even been written in the last 50 years. I can think of like maybe three books written in the last 50 years that I would say biblically and appropriately address, address this subject. Um, so there's not much out there on it, but it's still a biblical matter. And like I said, it's a matter of obedience. So we want to consider it. And so the way that I'm going to be structuring the sermon is answering a couple questions, and I, I hope it helps helps you guys think through this subject. So the first one is I'm going to be looking at what is biblical friendship. Um, I want to make sure that we have an understanding of what that means. Um, so we're going to look at yeah, basically just what the Bible has to say about that. Then we're going to t- look at and consider how do you cultivate one? How do you cultivate a biblical friendship? Um, so we'll look at how to forge and maintain such friendships. And then finally, we're going to look at why is this a matter of faith? Um, I'm preaching this in our Integrating Faith in Life series, so it's a matter of faith. How so, and what does that matter to us? And so we're going to be looking at that at the end. Um, So that's kind of where I'm going to be going over the next, however long the sermon is. But first, so first we're going to consider what is biblical friendship? I want us to start answering that question, and I want to start by giving you guys a couple of those puzzle pieces that I talked about. So we're going to look at a couple verses. I don't expect you guys to flip to them because I'm going to read them pretty quickly, but just pay attention as I read them. And if you want to note what uh, verses I'm reading, you can jot them down. And if you want to come back and look at them later, 
just let me know, and I can make sure to send them to you if you're interested in looking more at them. Uh, but So I'm gonna, we're going to look at three first. So they're all in Proverbs. Uh, the first one is Proverbs 17, 17. And that verse says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. The second one, Proverbs 18, verse 24 And that says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And then third is Proverbs 27, verse 10. And that says, do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. So those are three kind of, like I said, puzzle pieces that help us to begin to think about this subject. Um, Each of them is pointing out something about friendship, Um, and they're stressing, ultimately, and one thing we're going to bring up, I'm going to bring up the verses again, but one thing I want to stress at this point is how much of a blessing friendship is. So first, the first verse, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That is saying... I've, I've always been kind of confused about this verse, uh, but in, in studying it, I've recognized that this verse is saying that family will be there for you in hardship. The brother is born for adversity. They're there for you in hardship. When crisis hits, you're usually able to rely on your family for help. Um, they're there for you simply because they are family a lot of the time. There's, in a sense, an expectation and duty for family to be there for each other. Um, but... The problem in that is they might not like it very much. They might help you, but they might not like you or want to really help you. They might do it out of obligation or mandate. Um, You might come from a family um, in which people only reach out to each other when they're in trouble. Um, I know many people who have families where they don't seem to hear from their siblings unless something's going wrong. But when things are going well, you don't really ever hear from them. So in that kind of family, there's support, yes, but there's not really any enjoyment in each other. Um, And that support might not last forever. Remember the second verse that I read? Um, It said that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And in other words, the support and help that comes from family will eventually, it might eventually dry up if it's just motivated by duty. Um, If things get bad enough, they'll just stop. Or if they get fed up, they might just stop helping you. Friends are different, though. The first verse said that friends love at all times. Brothers are born for adversity, but friends love at all times. And as I just mentioned in the second verse, they stick closer than family. Friends are with us in good times and bad because they genuinely enjoy our company, and we enjoy theirs. That's one of the unique qualities of friendship. Your friends are the only people in your life who are there simply because they deliberately want to be. Um, there's no expectation, there's no responsibility for them to do so. They just deliberately want to be a part of your life because they love you. Um, There's no other relationship that is solely built upon that foundation of deliberate affection and enjoyment. Um, Others have some sort of obligation to you, um, and there are and you're obligated to them in some way. Family, co-workers, neighbors, those types of things. Friends don't, though. They stand by you for the sheer affection that they have for you. 
And that equality alone makes friendship profoundly precious um, and unique um, in this world. And that's why the third verse tells us that we should not forsake our friends. Um, let me repeat the verse. It said, Do not forsake your friends or your father's friends, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Now Solomon, the, the author of Proverbs, is saying here that when trouble hits, go first to your friends and then to your family. Your friends will care for you better than your family will. And again, it's because they have a genuine affection for you that extends beyond responsibility or duty. Family is there for you because they have to be, but friends are there because they want to be. Now keep in mind also, and this this was fascinating to me as I was thinking about this, is Solomon was writing these verses in Proverbs. Like, think about the context that he was writing that in, in ancient Israel. Um, that was a far more family-oriented society than ours is today. Um, far more family-oriented. In that day and age, family was far more important to them than it is to us. And expectations for family to take care of each other were also far higher than it is for us. But even with that being said, Solomon still acknowledged that a true, deep friendship is more committed and loving companionship than even a sibling. It's a greater blessing to have friends than family. Do you feel that way about your friends? Do you have friends who you prize that much? I think when we think about this, I think most of us would say that's really strange. Like family, family ties are closer than friendship. And I think that's true for most people. And so what we need to be thinking about is if that's true for us, why is Solomon saying that there is this kind of tier of friendship, this level of friendship that is even far more profound and deep and committed and intimate than um, even what we know in our families today? Um, maybe we're missing something if we're wondering why this is so strange to hear. So let me go on and give you three more verses. And these are going to also consider how deep friendship can be. Um, so again, pay attention as I'm reading these verses at the level of intimacy, intimacy that's communicated um, in these passages So the first one is Deuteronomy 13, verse 6. Um, And for this first one, I'm only going to read, it's it's only part of a sentence. I'm not going to read the whole thing because the sentence is actually really long. And you don't really need to understand the full context of the passage. I just want you to pay attention to how it talks about friendship. Um, So Deuteronomy 13, 6 says this. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife of your embrace or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And then it goes on. But yeah, so a friend who is as your own soul. And then 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 3, um, this is talking about David and Jonathan, a well-known example in Scripture regarding friendship. Uh, 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 3 says, as soon as he had finished speaking, Speaking to Saul, um, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So that's Saul took David. 
Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then 2 Samuel 1, verse 26. So David and Jonathan had a close friendship. Jonathan ends up dying in battle. And this verse is what David says when he learns of his friend's death. He says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Redeemer, reading these verses makes me sad for our society today. Um, It genuinely does. Few people have these kinds of friendships today. From the Deuteronomy passage, a friend who is as your own soul. From 1 Samuel, David and Jonathan's souls were knit together in love. Um, In the 2 Samuel passage, after Jonathan's death, David grieved the loss of his friend whose love for him was dearer to him than the love of his wives. David had had numerous wives at this point, and yet he says that Jonathan's love for him was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Um, Do you have friends like that? Do you have friends like Ruth who followed Naomi back to Israel rather than returning to her own family so that she could be with her friend? Do you have friends like David's mighty men who risked their lives simply to get him some cold, refreshing water in the middle of war? Our society today would look at a passage like the one that I brought up with David and Jonathan and say, oh, well, David and Jonathan must have been gay. They must have had a sexual relationship for for them to say those things. And as Christians, though, we cannot say that and affirm the continuity and inerrancy of Scripture. How could the Bible at one hand praise this to these people the seemingly homosexual relationship of David and Jonathan, while on the other hand saying that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God? Those are incompatible realities. No, that isn't how we should interpret these verses. In our hypersexualized society today, intimacy and sex are viewed as pretty much one and the same. They're synonymous. If you're speaking of intimacy, people automatically assume you're talking about like a sexual relationship. But that's not the case. That's not how the Bible thinks of the subject. There are many forms of intimacy that go far beyond that, that aren't sexual in any capacity. Um, And friendship is one of those. Deep intimacy between friends can be experienced without sin and sex being involved in any way. Now, David said that Jonathan's love surpassed that of women, not because it was romantic. It was because Jonathan's love for him was so evident to him. Um, If you go back and read through 1 and 2 Samuel, I've actually been reading through uh, those books right now in my own Bible reading plan, and it's been fascinating, like even as I was preparing the sermon, to be reading those also to see what their friendship looked like because Jonathan's care and concern and compassion for David was so evident. Jonathan served him. He sacrificed for him. He encouraged him. Um, He protected him from his own father who wanted to kill David. Um, Jonathan's own father, Saul, almost killed Jonathan because he was trying to protect David. Um, And so Jonathan's love for David was so evident And one of the things that I think we miss today is that historically, if you go back and read what previous generations and previous centuries have written on this idea of friendship, 
they recognize that there's aspects of friendship that are unique when men are friends with other men and women are friends with other women. There's, there's something unique and um, beneficial there that, that can't even be experienced necessarily in the context of marriage between a husband and wife. Um, there's things that men can um, just enjoy with each other that's different than women with other women, and that's part of God's design for us as complementarians. And um, we don't really talk about that today, but I think we even see that evidence of that reality in these passages. Jonathan, as David's friend, was able to care for him in ways that his wives couldn't or didn't. Um, and David was deeply thankful for that. And so that's what he's highlighting in these passages. Now, up to this point, I haven't actually defined what biblical friendship is. So with everything that I said out, though, I hope that by this point you've had, you have a general picture of what that looks like. Biblical friendship at its highest level is deep companionship with another person in which you mutually know and love each other's souls. Um, and I take that, pa- that language from the passages that we've looked at. It's, it's a soul companionship. Um, and there are certainly varying levels of friendship. You also can look at verses in Proverbs that talks about friends who will leave you if you don't have a lot of money. That's not this kind of friendship that I'm talking about. There's varying degrees of friendship. What I'm talking about is the highest and greatest form of friendship. And I would say this is the form of friendship that is most lacking um, in society and even in the church today. So this is what I'm commending, us, commending to us. This is what I want us to aspire to um, with, with a few close companions in our life is this level of soul, knowledge, and companionship. Because again, it makes me sad that when I think about how, how much of a far cry um, many of our friendships are from this today. And again, don't get me wrong, I do think that we are a church that, of people who know one another and love one another and care deeply for each other. This is a church full of people who are good friends with each other. I see that. I have friendships with you guys to, to know that that's true. Um, again, even at Clint and Kyla's wedding yesterday, there was many people from Redeemer there, and it was so cool to see everyone just enjoying and appreciating one another um, in that context. I think weddings were one of the clearest examples that friendships do exist, and I see those um, in this church. Um, but I want us to seek more. I want us to go deeper with them. Um, I want us to have friendships like David and Jonathan or Naomi and Ruth. Um, I want us to think about like where are the friendships that will last decades, even if one of us moves away? Um, can your closest friends read you like a book because they know you so well? Um, I heard one um, speaker who was talking about this subject, uh, Sam Albury. He's, he's actually one of the authors that I would say speaks really well on this subject. Um, he brought up a, a couple questions for the listeners to consider in a, in a talk he was giving. And he said, do you only go on trips or vacations with family or do you actually go on those things with friends? Um, do any of your closest friends have a key to your house? Or do they feel welcome enough to be able to just show up to your house unannounced? Um, and it was, again, convicting for me because I was thinking about those questions and I couldn't answer yes to any of those things. Um, and so I want to be able to do that. I want to have um, 
those kinds of friendships. And I know I'm not alone in thinking that, that others in this church don't share those kinds of friendships as well. And so I want us to seek them. And what scares me is that in a lot of ways, we might not even realize that what we are missing out on. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, he talks about friendship in his book, uh, The Four Loves. And I, I, th- I thought one interesting thing that he said was, few value it, and he's referring to friendship, few value it because few experience it. We don't realize how deep friendship can actually be because we don't put forth the effort to actually cultivate them. Um, and therefore, we don't experience the full blessings that they can provide and afford us. Um, and this is especially true in the very transitional, mobile society that we are today. Like, even living here in a college town, many of you are only here for a short period of time. We've seen many members come and go, and that's all right. We know that that is part of the context of this, of this um, town and community. Um, so, but we need to recognize that the mobile nature of our culture has made deep, long-term friendships almost a thing of the past, and we need to fight against that. We settle for less, and we oftentimes look to our spouses to meet all of our most intimate relational needs. Um, um, it is one thing to pursue intimacy with your spouse. That is good and right, and you should do that. That is necessary to have a healthy marriage. Um, he or she should be one of your closest friends, obviously. Um, but it is something else entirely um, when we keep other people outside of our family at arm's length because we know that they might only be in our life for a couple of years. We want to invite people into our lives, even if we're not going to live around each other for very long. Um, that's what the Bible calls us to. The biblical picture of friendship is one in which two friends mutually know and love one another, um, that they enjoy each other's company, that they know each other's thoughts and desires. They're open with each other about their fears and worries and even their darkest struggles. Um, They don't keep their lives private from one another. They push back against privacy. They're eager to help each other. And most importantly, their companionship makes all all other aspects of their lives better. It improves their life in other capacities. Friendship is not so much, um, this is something that I thought was really interesting as I was reading on this subject, but a lot of authors, when they talk about it, they'll say that friendship isn't really created. You don't create friendships. You discover them. Um, It's discovered when two people find that they have a common affinity with one another. Um, Again, going back to C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, he, he talks about friendship in this term. In, in this way, he says, friendship arises out of, the mere com- out of mere companionship. So he, he would describe companionship as like one level of relationship and friendship is this higher level. And so he's comparing them. He says, friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover what they have in common, some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and, what, and which... Till that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. The point he is making is that friendship is a relationship in which two people are walking alongside one another. It's like a shoulder-to-shoulder relationship. It's not where two people are turned towards one another like you would imagine the posture of like romance to be where the focus is on each other. With friendship, 
Um, it's walking alongside one another where you do care and have affection towards one another, but you're walking alongside each other in a common pursuit or affinity or goal. And so the goal is not simply the existence of the friendship itself. The goal is something outside of the friendship. The goal is the shared companionship that will produce something bigger and better than itself, than the friendship itself. So think back to the, day, the example of David and Jonathan. Um, I'm going to read the First Samuel 18 passage again, but I'm going to add a couple verses at the end um, because it, it brings up what, I'm trying to, what I've just been describing. So 1 Samuel 18 says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants." So do you see what's going on here? This is when David was becoming a warrior for Saul. Um, and this was before he became the king of Israel. Um, and notice what Jonathan's love of David led him to do. In that moment, um, when they're becoming comrades in war, he gave David his robe and his armor and his weapons. So Jonathan, as David's friend, sought to equip and strengthen David for the war campaigns that he was going to be going on. Jonathan's friendship helped David succeed. The care and concern that he showed him helped him do better and equipped him for war so that he would be successful in it. So Jonathan united with David in his pursuit of defending Israel. He wasn't trying to keep David from war. He wasn't trying to keep him for himself. His friendship did not distract David away from what he was responsible for. It actually supported him in the pursuit of that thing. And that is how our friendship should be. And I've seen that in my own life, in some of my friendships. And I was reflecting on this um, and thinking in terms of like how some of my closer friendships have started. And I was thinking like I've had some friendships that have spawned out of um, a mutual appreciation for books. And I've seen how my friends who my friendships have started around that similar affinity has actually helped me to be more disciplined as a reader and to, to just devote myself more to learning through books and um, academia and things like that. Or even some of my closest friends from college, like I got to know them because we were all involved in crew uh, on U of I's campus. And that shared um, affinity and participation in that ministry afforded us incredible blessings in that spurred me on to grow in my walk with the Lord and to serve um, in ministry. I would not have done that if I didn't have friends alongside me that were doing the same thing. Um, and that is why we need godly friends, because they help us become something bigger and better than we already are. They spur us on to love and good works more effectively than we can do that on our own. They influence us for, for Christ, and they give us examples to imitate. That's why Proverbs tells us that, iron sharpens, that as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. Um, 
I, as I've, I listen to a lot of uh, John Piper's biography talks, and one, one theme that I've actually noticed in, in a couple of them is that great missionary and prayer movements have started because a couple of close friends um, got together and shared a vision for ministry and pushed one another in pursuit of those things. In a sense, if you think about it, God uses friends to fulfill his great commission, not just individuals. Even think about the Reformation. The Reformation was not just the work of any one man. Um, Luther and Calvin are obviously figureheads in the Reformation movement, but they both had intimate friends in their lives that came alongside them and worked in the ministry with them to accomplish the great things that they did. It was an effort of friends working together. So single people, you need friends to help you look beyond yourself and serve a greater cause. And married people, you need friends too. Your spouse needs to be your friend. I already said that. And don't forget that. But you also need to have other friends, other intimate friends as well. They need to be a priority in your life. Other biblical friends will spur you on to, and help you to seek to love and care for your family better. Your marriage and your family life will improve if you have godly, deep friendships that will help you be a better husband and father or wife and mother. I was reflecting on this, and I am 100% convinced that sexual sin in particular would not be as prevalent and destructive of an issue in families and marriages and the church in general, it would not be as prevalent and destructive if more men were better friends with each other than they are now. I think it would be a far less significant issue in the church. I'm 100% convinced of that. And I think the same goes for women and struggles that women deal with as well. I mean, women struggle with sexual sin as well, but um, I, I think we would see victory over sin struggles that we deal with so much more effectively and long-term if we have those close companions and friends in those battles. So Redeemer Church, we need friends and not just casual ones. We need friends of the highest order, the kind that Scripture exhorts us to. Men need brothers and women need sisters who know their hearts intimately and who love them dearly. We need friends who are united with us in our godly pursuits in life. And the deeper the unity, the deeper the friendship we'll experience. These kinds of friends are rare. You're not going to be friends with every other person in the church to this degree. Um, that's not realistic. But you need to have a couple close companions that you can experience this with. You need that. And it's all right if there's just a couple that still makes all the difference in the world if you have that. So with that said, that leads to my second point and the question that I want to address with it. So now that we've looked at what biblical friendship is, the next question I want to address is how do we cultivate that? Um, and this is where I want to get more practical. My hope is that we, we all want and recognize our need for these kinds of friendship at this point. Uh, but unfortunately, um, in the words of Aristotle, he said that the desire for friendship comes quickly. Friendship does not. Um, in other words, the desire is the easy part. The hard part is actually cultivating these types of relationships. They take years to do. You're not going to have this level of friendship with someone in just one year. Um, it takes a long time. It takes intentionality to establish. Um, and, and we need to recognize that the it's hard because we are selfish, sinful people. 
The issue is first and foremost our own hearts. It's not what we're doing practically, first and foremost. First and foremost, it's our hearts that's the issue. Um, Even though we love others, we love ourselves more. When life gets busy or we're in a bad mood, we shut out other people um, around us and we just turn and focus on ourselves. So what do we do? We settle in, like in those instances, we settle for superficial or casual and just momentary friendships. Um, They're easy to start when we want them and they're easy to let go of when they become inconvenient for us. But we must repent of this tendency and in repenting of that, we do that by pursuing such friendships. A biblical friendship is hard to forge and even harder to maintain, but it is possible and I want to point out three things in particular, in particular that I, I see in Scripture that will help us do that. Um, so they're going to be as follows. So there's going to be three things. So I, I'll say that to cultivate a biblical friendship, um, you need to be careful, candid, and committed. So we're going to look at each of those three things really quickly. So first, we've got to be careful. Um, Proverbs 13, verse 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on, and on his law he meditates day and night. So both of those passages point out the fact that we need to be selective in who we surround ourselves with. Not everyone is going to be a good influence on us. Our friends can either help, us, help make us wise or they can make us foolish and actually lead us to suffering harm. So be careful with who you devote yourself to. Does the person that you're, maybe think about someone that you're befriending, does that person in question bring out the best in you or do they bring out the worst? Is he or she an example worthy of imitation? Or do you have to remind yourself not to be like him or her? Do you share the same fundamental values and priorities in life? These are the types of questions we should consider. And keep in mind that the point is not to just cut yourself off from everyone who doesn't meet these standards. In fact, I would say that many of us are actually being too careful in our lives. You don't get to stop loving your spouse or your fellow church member or your neighbor just because you don't like them very much or because they test your patience. That's not what I'm saying by saying that we need to be careful. The point is that your few closest companions in life should be those who help you honor Christ, not dishonor him. And I bring this up as a warning to those who find themselves surrounded by bad influences. Those are the people that I'm mainly speaking to right now. This is meant for those whose best friends are drinking buddies or just people that you just talk only about casual things with. It never goes below surface level with them. Or friends who just, you just find yourself just constantly gossiping with, for instance. Um, Those are bad influences on you. So maybe consider, is that a relationship that you should be so devoted to? Seek friends that help you honor Christ, not dishonor him. So be careful. And then second, um, be candid. Um, As I said, um, Von Roberts, uh, in his book on friendship, it's called True Friendship, he says this, if we want greater intimacy with others, we will have to be prepared to be open with them. 
that may involve sharing our hopes, fears, and passions, as well as our darkest secrets or greatest temptations. I have found time and again that as I have taken the risk of being open with trusted friends, far from recoiling from me in horror, they have responded by revealing some of their own struggles, and our friendship has deepened. And I, I can speak to that in my own experience as well. That has certainly been true for me also. Deep friendship is risky because it requires us to let others into the private areas of our lives that can be gross or scary or just embarrassing. Um, if we have taken the time to be careful and selective of who we're candid with, though, we can trust, trust that that risk is worth taking. They will understand and acknowledge that the same gross, scary, and embarrassing tendencies that we have, they have in their own heart. Opening up your own life to them will give them opportunity to show you grace and mercy, and it can open up doors to allow them to share things with you. And like I said, I can speak from experience that confession and vulnerability can produce some of the sweetest, greatest conversations and moments you will share with, with your friends. So then on the flip side, though, being candid also means being willing to share hard things with each other when that's called for as well. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6 say, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The point of those passages is that people who only tell us what we want to hear are not good friends. They're not good people that are helping us grow and become more like Christ. Friends who truly want what is best for us are able to rebuke and correct us when it's needed so that we would grow and kill sin in our lives and pursue holiness. So not only must we be able to be candid in our correction, but we also must be able to receive that. If a friend does come to us with something difficult that they're challenging us with, that they're trying to correct us with, we need to stop and consider, if this person loves me, for one, this is probably hard for them to share, but then also, they're doing this out of love and concern for me. They're not trying to just tear me down. So we need to be receptive and open to receiving those things. And then finally, we need to be committed the verses that I mentioned in my first point speak to this already. Again, friends love at all times, um, as Proverbs 17 says, that we should turn to them in calamity, even before we do our family. They are companions who love us in all seasons. Um, fair weather friends are not friends at all. Not, not to this degree, not this kind of friendship. Um, but how do we develop commitment to each other? Um, Hugh Black, in his book on friendship, he wrote this, Through little occasions of helpfulness, we are training for the great trial, should it ever come, when the, fra- when the fabric of friendship will be tested to, the, to its very foundation. In other words, we maintain and strengthen our commitment to each other through little, relatively insignificant, or just mundane actions with each other. But the key is that they must be intentional, you cannot expect to have a committed friendship with someone if you're not intentional about maintaining it. Neglecting friendships is the easiest way for them to die. So, practically speaking, be intentional about checking in to how your friends are doing. Take interest in what's going on in their life. Don't just expect them to listen to you share what's going on in yours. Be intentional to invite them into your home and life. 
Don't take them for granted. Let them know how much they mean to you, um, not just once in a blue moon, but regularly. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. Just tell someone you appreciate their friendship. You're glad that you get to spend time with them. Those types of things. It doesn't have to be elaborate or long, like I said. Just be genuine. But actually state those things explicitly to people. Um, We don't have to make covenants to each other like Jonathan did to David. That's not what I'm calling us to. But we need to challenge ourselves to include and consider our friends when making life decisions that could impact those friendships. I think a lot of the times when we make decisions, we only make them in terms of just our family. And I want to challenge us to consider not just our family, but how can our decisions impact our friendships? We want to keep that in mind as well. Um, And I think that's pretty countercultural, but I think Scripture gives us precedence to say we should be doing that. A good example of um, a committed friendship, a friendship that really demonstrates what I'm talking about, um, is the friendship of John Newton and William Cooper. So you guys might not know who those guys are. John Newton, um, he was a pastor. He wrote uh, the hymn Amazing Grace. And William Cooper wrote... Um, two, song, two of his most famous hymns were God Moves in a Mysterious Way um, and There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, um, which is interesting for those of you guys who were at Clinton Kyla's wedding yesterday because we sang both of those songs, ironically enough. But um, So for context of their friendship, William Cooper, from even a very young age, um, experienced debilitating, very intense, severe depression. Um, he attempted to commit suicide numerous times throughout his life. Uh, He would have, um, he would struggle with depression for a while, and then um, about about once every couple years, he would have an extreme um, season of it where it would be so debilitating that he almost couldn't function physically. He could be almost catatonic at times. Um, So William Cooper is experiencing this deep depression in his life, and... One thing I, I thought was super interesting, so the song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, if you, if you read the lyrics, it's a very hopeful song. It, gives, it provides a lot of encouragement and comfort for those who are struggling. Um, and it's, it's so interesting to consider how hopeful that, that hymn is and to know that the day that William Cooper wrote that hymn, that morning he wrote it, Um, because he was experiencing joy. But depression set in that day so deeply that that night he attempted to commit suicide. Um, He tried to kill himself with a knife, but someone um, found him before before he bled to death. Um, And so I, I I share that information to just create a context for William Cooper was someone who greatly struggled and needed intense, long-term help during his entire life. And John Newton was his pastor um, for 13 years, but they maintained a friendship, a very close friendship for 33 years until William Cooper eventually died of um, illness. Um, And so for 13 years, as, um, as Cooper's pastor, Newton was diligent to care for him, uh, to just even protect him from himself when needed. Um, Even though he had so many other responsibilities as a pastor, so many other people in the church to care for, he cared for him deeply, and he had a deep affection for him. And even after 
um, Newton ended up being commissioned to be a pastor in a different church. He had to move away. Um, he maintained close correspondence, um, weekly correspondence with Cooper um, for the, the next 20 years. Um, and Cooper himself said uh, later in life that uh, even though he had such a bleak view of his life, he said that no one has had a more sincere and affectionate friend than he did. And he was referring to John Newton. Newton was incredibly selfless and patient and compassionate with his friend. He had to speak the same truths into his life over and over and over again. And so often they wouldn't seek in, but he was so diligent and caring for him in those times. And this is, um, again, despite his own trials, one thing that I, I found fascinating is I did a little bit more research. I was looking into it last night. So John Newton and his wife um, experienced infertility. They were never able to have children of their own. Um, and they adopted two daughters, one of whom um, passed away from tuberculosis at 14, and their other daughter experienced uh, later in life onset of depression so bad that she had to be institutionalized. And so Newton's own life was not free of trial and hardship, and yet he was still able to pour into his friend so well um, for such a long time, and even over a distance. Um, when they were together, he helped him, um, he helped Cooper get his mind off of just himself uh, by helping, by um, asking him to put together a hymn book for their church together. So the hymn project, uh, Cooper was uh, really into writing poetry and hymns. And so uh, Newton worked with him on just like helping him get his mind off of his, his own darkness and trials. Uh, he Newton had Cooper join him for visitations with people in the church to help him connect with other people. Uh, he just spent tons of time with him and even canceled uh, vacations when uh, Cooper was having particularly difficult times. And again, he listened and pointed him to the grace of Christ. And these are all examples worthy of imitation that I want us to learn from and to, to follow. Um, I bring up this example because it's just such a good demonstration of uh, what commitment can look like. And again, we're not going to experience, most likely, um, a friendship that is such a trial as this one. Um, though uh, Newton loved Cooper deeply, he did say that it was a very great trial for him to care for Cooper for so long. But he didn't, he didn't dislike it. He, he, he saw it as a privilege and an honor to be able to care for his friend for such a long time. And so I want us to think about examples such as this and to, to imitate them in our own commitment to our friends. So again, cultivating friendships, how do we do that? We want to be careful, we want to be candid, and we want to be committed. Um, and again, I think we see that example in John Newton towards William Cooper. Now, at this point, I imagine most of us are experiencing two emotions. One of them is, I hope, that we long for these friendships. We long for relationships like these. But then two, we're probably, if you're in the same boat as I am, you're convicted by how far you have fallen short of being this kind of friend to others. Um, and that leads me to my third point in question, and that is, why is this a matter of faith? Um, 
So let's turn back. If you still have your Bibles open, look at John 15, verses 12 through 17 with me again. I'm going to reread that. It says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So, if you look at this passage, I think your attention might gravitate, if you're like me, your attention will gravitate to, towards verse 14, because it sounds kind of strange. It sounds very legalistic, if you think about it. Verse 14 says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So, we need to recognize that there's two ways that we can interpret this verse. The first is saying that it's this if-then situation where our friendship with Christ is dependent upon us doing what he commands. So almost like it's, it's, it almost seems like it's saying, you have to obey me if you want to be my friend. You have to be obedient to have my love. Um, it could appear to be saying that. But if you look back at verse 12, we need to recognize that that's not how we should interpret this verse. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Our love, our ability to extend love towards one another is due to the fact that he has loved us already. So he's not saying that you will have my love if you first love each other. He's saying you're able to love one another because I've already given you my love. So then how should we think about verse 14? The alternative interpretation is that the obedience of Christ's command is confirmation that we are his friends, not the condition that makes that so. It's the evidence that we are his friends. So therefore, our ability to love others and be good friends to them is rooted in and fueled by the friendship and love that Christ has towards us. Because we have his love, we will love one another. That is the fruit of that relationship with Christ. That will be an, that will be an example that we see in each other. That will be a trait of someone who has been befriended by Christ. That's what verse 14 is saying. That is why friendship is a matter of faith. Our ability to love others and be good friends flows from our friendship with Christ. Now, going back to John Newton, um, who I was already talking about, is a great example of this. Um, Tony Ranke wrote a biography on Newton. I've actually got it up here. Um, This book, I'm not super far into it yet, but it's amazing, and I highly recommend it. Um, But in it, he explains Newton's view of Christ and how that... Um, led to the way that he approached his Christian life. And I want to read you guys a quote from the book because it's fantastic. Um, In it, you see how Newton's vertical faith in Christ um, empowered his horizontal befriending of others. So basically, in the passage, we'll look at how his vertical friendship with Christ impacted and translated into horizontal, deep, and intimate friendships with others. 
So it, it empowered his ability to befriend others like Cooper. So um, listen, as I read the, the passage from the book, listen how the gospel points us to Christ, and not just Christ as our Savior and Lord, but I want you to pay attention to what it talks about Christ as our friend. This isn't really a subject that we talk about often in, when talking about our relationship with Jesus. How is he our friend? But um, what Rinky has in here is fantastic, so I really wanted to read it to you guys. Um, so it says this, but of all the names new and cherished for Christ, perhaps the most wide-ranging is friend. For Newton, Christ is the all-sufficient friend who protects us. He condescends to seek sinners who are poor and puny. No weakness in his friends withholds Christ's free and endless love. And no illustration shows this more clearly than in Christ's free willingness to ransom his life for his friends. As we saw in, in the passage in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what he's talking about here. Christ is a friend who finds the sinner wandering in, godle in a godless desert, tripping towards eternal death. Christ step steps in not only to save him, but also to give him eternal joy and comfort, true friendship in all of its dimensions. The Christian lives a strange, mysterious life that swings, uh, that seems to swing daily from darkness into light, from peace into strife. Time and time again, our friend Jesus breaks into this strange and mysterious riddle of life and empowers us for a sweet and stable life in the storm. And yet for all his help, we are enigmatic friends in return. We are forgetful forgetful and faithless and disloyal, but our neglect and distrust and disobedience does not diminish his love for us. He is steadfast. He's the friend we wish we could be. He's the all-sufficient friend we need. And if he were not, he would surely spurn us from his sight. But he doesn't. Christ is the perfect friend. His sacrificial love is perfect. He left glory, took on flesh, submitted to shame, and delivered himself to death to save us from sin and misery and to open the kingdom to us who were his enemies. For he saw and pitied us when we knew not how to pity ourselves. He is transcendent in glory, but draws close to hopeless sinners in a friendship. We need a friend, and who better than a friend who made heaven and earth, raised the dead, and hushed storms? He is always with us. Jesus is always near, about our path by day and our bed by night, nearer than the light by which we see or the air we breathe, nearer than we are to ourselves, so that not a thought, a sigh, or a tear escapes his notice. Think back to John 15. Newton's vision of Christ as his friend is the same vision that Christ wants us to have when we think about this passage in John 15. Christ himself said that he no longer calls us his servants, but his friends. We want to realize how significant that is. And we can know that that's true through the sacrifice that he made on our behalf by dying on the cross. He said it himself that there is no greater demonstration of love than that. And not only that, but he has re revealed the Father's will to us. He has given us his spirit so that we can share in fellowship with him and we can understand his word, the revealed truth that he has given us. He chose us to be his friends and he has given us his spirit so that he has allowed us to be, 
to, bef- to befriend him in return. We would reject Christ if it were not for his spirit changing our hearts. So not only has he chosen us, but he has given us his spirit so that we can be friends in return. Again, as the passage in Ranke's book pointed out, we're horrible friends in return, but we can be friends in return. And that in and of itself is a miracle. And by being his friends, we are enabled to befriend others as well. He's not just an enabler, but he is our model to follow also. So hence, his command for us to love one another as he has loved us. Redeemer, we must acknowledge our own limitations in our friendships and the limitations of others. You will disappoint your friends and you will be disappointed by them. As long as you live, you will be selfish and focused on yourself more than others. Until Christ returns, that will be our state. You will hurt people and they will hurt you. And it will be sometimes unintentional and sometimes intentional. So don't put your hope in your earthly friendships. That's the key to being able to actually being a truly loving and selfless friend, is not putting your hope in your friendships. No one besides Christ can satisfy your relational desires and expectations. No one can know you as completely as he does. No one can be with you as closely as he is. No one can help you as consistently as he will. No one will love you as deeply and selflessly and quickly as him. No one is as glorious enough to satisfy and please you like Christ. And no one else has to meet your needs because he already has. If you put your hope in other people instead of him, you will be left feeling unsatisfied and inevitably you will want to use people rather than love them. You will hold grudges, you will gossip, you will feel envy, You might even feel relief when they fail. You will ignore their struggles. You will keep things secret from them. All of those things are signs that you're using, not loving your friends and loved ones. Instead of loving them, you're hating them, and most likely it's because of some offense that you think they've committed against you. But if your hope is in Christ, that frees you to forgive them of that offense and show mercy and grace to them. It frees you to love others. Don't let them dictate whether you are joyful or despairing. Don't place that burden on them. They can't bear it. Jesus can, though, and he actually intends to do so. Trust that he has chosen and loves you. The cross is proof of that. And if you turn to him in faith, when you believe that he is your all-sufficient and perfect friend, you can begin to love your friends more freely and joyfully, even when they hurt you. That is the fruit of our faith in Christ. So my vision for this church is that we would be a congregation made up of people who all have dear and intimate friends in our lives. I'm convinced that if we sought those kinds and experienced those kinds of close friendship, we would experience grace in new and profound ways that we haven't even been experiencing yet. I see us being a happier, more joyful people I see us becoming a church that knows and loves scripture better, a church that's killing sin and seeing victory over that sin that has plagued us for years. I see us loving each other and loving Christ more deeply. I see us being a people who are sharing the gospel with others and helping others to repent and trust in Christ more. I see his will being done because we are friends with each other and helping one another pursue his will. 
So church, let's not only seek our godly friends who know and love us, but even more importantly, let's faithfully be godly friends for others. And in so doing, that will help us to glorify and imitate our Lord, which is ultimately what we want to do in this life. So let's pray towards that end. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your word. Um, As I prayed at the beginning, Lord, your word is more to be desired than gold, and it is sweeter than honey. Father, thank you that you have taught us so much through your word. You have so much for us to learn from your scriptures on what um, friendship can be um, and what it can mean for our lives. And God, thank you that even more importantly than our friends with others, God, thank you for the friendship that we have in Christ. Thank you that we have not just a Lord and Savior, but we have a friend in him. Thank you that we have a Savior that walks with us, that knows us, has genuine affection for us, um, a Savior that meets all of our needs. And Father, we pray that that would, through the joy and the delight that that reality brings us, that that would overflow in a love that is produced towards others, and that would spur us on to deep and abiding friendships um, with those in our lives, that we would have close soul companions so that we might glorify you and walk with your Son. I pray this in his name. Amen.